Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Hey, good morning, friends. I'm so glad that you're here, everyone that's online, everyone that's in the room. Uh, This is, if this is your first week with us, whether online or in the room, we're in the middle of a message series, and we're going to continue that series on dealing with difficult people. Anyone have any difficult people in their lives? Anyone been a difficult person? You know, we have dealt with over the first two weeks, we dealt with confrontational people, and we dealt last week with unpleasable people. And if you have those people in your life and you're not sure how to deal with them, make sure you head it to One Church CO and you can get those messages on that archive. This week, we're going to talk about dealing with manipulative people. How many have people that manipulate them in this life? Don't put your hands up. And how many have manipulated some people in this life? Everyone could put their hands up. Here's what we're going to do. Just before we jump into the teaching time, I just want to remind you that the goal of this series is not to eliminate difficult people from your life. Because as we see from the life of Jesus, he engaged with difficult people, and he he, uh, engaged with them, and he dialogued with them. So it's not, the goal is not to eliminate them because we're a church that wants to help people know God, love people, and impact this uh, city. And we know one of the ways we'll impact this city is, listen, we need to learn how to love even difficult people, right? Because we've all been there. We've all done that. And somebody loved us and God showed love to us even when we were difficult, right? So here's what we're going to do. I thought, I'm going to show you a little video that gives you my heart for this series. This is a video that's going to represent what I'm hoping you're going to get out of this series. This is a little video I found on YouTube of a voice actor named Paul Rugg, and he is hanging out with his dog. Here it is. Hi, everybody. It's Paul. You know, a lot of people ask me, uh, after a long day of voiceover or writing or doing all those creative things that I do, um, how do I relax? Well... Like many other Americans, uh, I come home and I I pet my dog. You see, petting your dog is one of the most relaxing things you can possibly do. It releases a hormone called oxytocin, which reduces stress. Also, it lowers your heart rate and it lowers your blood pressure. Plus, people who pet their dogs are five times more likely to live longer than people who just have cats. Plus, the dogs like it so much, and it's a nice bonding experience. That's right. Good daddy's little boy. Daddy's little boy. Daddy's little boy. Okay, okay. So, So the dog is aggressive and noisy, but did you notice the dog couldn't hurt him? Here's the goal of the series. It's not to eliminate difficult people from your life, but to limit the negative impact that difficult people can have in your life. That's the key. I mean, you can't eliminate them. And really, it's not good to go around breaking relationships with just everybody who's difficult. But it's to limit the negative impact that they can have in your life. So I went to social media and I asked you, 
How do people try to manipulate you in this life? And you responded. In fact, on Instagram, you responded that 82% said it was with guilt. Anyone ever been, maybe this week, you've been put on a guilt trip. A guilt trip. You know, guilt is a massive lever in people's lives that people pull on to help try to manipulate them. Over here, it was between anger and deceitfulness. And anger just got edged out. Now, I went to my own personal Twitter page and I put a poll out there. And again, it was interesting. Guilt won by a long shot. 44% of those that responded said, listen, guilt is an often used in my life by others to manipulate me. But flattery was number two. We're going to get to that. And anger and with deceit. And I asked here, if, if it's not listed here, are there other ways that you've experienced people trying to manipulate you? And people responded. This guy named Mark, he said this, some use others, meaning other people. They leverage support through the back channels. They kind of get a group together covertly, and then they send an advocate on their behalf to confront or to deal with it, but they manipulate. That's a deceitfulness. Some through spiritual language. They use spiritual words to justify their preferences, casting the wider principle aside, that some people use religious language to try to control or manipulate others. This next one's a little more serious from Kathy, and I, I know Kathy actually, and she said this, shame and fear are two big ones my mother used on me. Sentences beginning with, you can't, you'll never be able to, you'll never be enough. Her favorites were, you'll never be able to do life without me. You know, sometimes in life, some of you also are carrying that type of baggage in life, where we have people that should have been the primary cheerleaders in our lives, but, but in order to control, what they did is they put us lower, tore some of that confidence out so that we would need to depend on them in this life. Have you ever seen that happen? It may have happened to you. I like Andy's response. Andy said, you can manipulate me just with cupcakes. <laughs> Give me cupcakes and I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> Manipulation in all of its forms, uh, it, it, it holds together, and what it does is it basically forms uh, these levers that are in our lives. Everyone has them. And what people do is they try to pull on the lever in your life to make you do something that they want you to do. Here's the definition I'm working with for, for manipulation. Manipulation is leveraging or pulling on the lever in someone's life in order to get them onto your agenda for your benefit. On your agenda for your benefit. See, see, every one of us has an agenda. You know that, right? Did you know your boss has an agenda? No? Well, he does. She does. Did you know that your spouse has an agenda? Did you know your girlfriend? She's got an agenda. Did you know that your boyfriend, he's got an agenda too. Your best friend, an agenda. Your family, they have a plan for your life. They have an agenda for your life. Everyone has agenda. Even Jesus had an agenda. In fact, in Luke chapter four, if you're following along in your Jesus Project book, verses 18 and 19, Jesus out front tells you what his agenda is. He just gives it to you right out front. He tells you what it is. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news. Part of Jesus' agenda was to come and proclaim good news to the poor, 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was very upfront what his agenda was when he came to earth. Now, I want you to ask yourself when you look at his agenda, who does it benefit? Does it benefit him? No. It benefits us. His agenda was for the benefit of others. When we begin to manipulate for the benefit of ourselves, that's where it becomes toxic. Here's what you need to remember, because if you've been around church or religion for a long time, you may have experienced this, and, and it doesn't come from Jesus, because Jesus never manipulates us to get onto his agenda. He invites us to join his agenda. It's always an invitation. Jesus never, you read the Gospels, he never manipulates someone. He invites them into his agenda. Now, I grew up going to church, and sometimes I know that manipulation in religion can go hand in hand. I'll tell you this, uh, Pastor Keith, our teaching pastor, myself, and our worship teams, man, that is so far from what we want for this church and want for you. It's an invitation to get in on what God is doing as opposed to, twisting someone's arm to try to get them to comply. That is, it's negative fuel, right? So there's all kinds of different ways that we attempt to manipulate in this life. You know, I, I love this, and this is really something you need to ask yourself. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not, don't worry, you get a pass here, but just listen in because you might learn something too. But if you're a follower of Jesus, why would you ever use manipulation in a relationship? Why would you ever use manipulation? We all have, right? I mean, kids are really good at this. Have you ever, they call it crocodile tears for a reason. They have a way of just turning them on and off to get what they want. I mean, we know all our lives we have used manipulation in some form or another. But as an adult and a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to watch yourself as we go through this message. Are there people that you particularly have a pattern of being manipulative with or places or scenarios and you try to manipulate the circumstances to get people onto your agenda. Because if there is, you know what that reveals? Always follow the patterns in your life. We all make mistakes, but patterns reveal a bigger problem. And here's the thing. All of those patterns reveal an area, a place, or a person in whom you do not trust that God, can, God causes everything to work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. If you don't trust that God can work all things together for good, you're going to try to help him out by manipulating. By manipulating people. Remember we learned in week one, we even good people with desiring good things will sometimes use toxic tools to accomplish that. And God is always more um, concerned with your righteousness than he is with you being right, right? God is always more concerned with us being righteous than it is to be right you can win an argument, but you could do it the wrong way. And if you win it the wrong way, you just end up damaging yourself and you damage other people. So, so here it is. When it comes to working God, trusting God, some people manipulate, even good people, even people who are followers of Jesus, and they manipulate a lot, and it's really because they don't trust God or they don't believe in the power of prayer. They can't pray about it, 
and trust that God will be working these things out. So they have to get around it and make something happen. So here's what we're going to do. In the Gospel of Luke, I went through it this week. I read the entire Gospel of Luke, and I circled every time people tried to manipulate Jesus. Every time I could find, anyways. And I found just over 20 times people tried to manipulate Jesus. If this represents our life or Jesus' life, there's these levers in our lives and people, again, are trying to pull on these levers to get you onto their agenda so that they can control you or manipulate you. And we are different. Everyone in this room, everyone online, we're vulnerable in different areas. Well, the first lever that we see and that is often used is powering up. Powering up. Have you ever had some of that do that? They power up on you? This all has to do with intimidation. Some people will try to manipulate you in this life, and they do it by trying to intimidate you. Intimidation is, you know, making you feel small so you'll comply, right? And they have many different strategies. It's not just one strategy for powering up. You know, one of the, and you see it all the time right now, one of the favorite ways of powering up is using fear. Fear. Listen, I'm a little biased here. I think moms are pretty good at this. Moms are pretty good at this. My mom was a specialist. (laughs) I love my mom, but she was really good at this. I remember being at the dinner table. My dad owned businesses. And every once in a while, mom would say something to my dad like this. If you don't do the inventory, we'll lose the business. Quite an extreme statement, isn't it? It's kind of like the, the mom that just sees an ache or pain and somebody says, oh, I'm not, I'm not feeling good. Could be cancer. You know, it's like going to worst case scenario. Well, why was my mom leveraging fear? Because she was afraid. And she wanted to make sure that John, my dad, was afraid also so he would do what she wanted him to do. Fear is a, a tactic that many people use to try to leverage you to comply, to manipulate you. The other one is, Anger. Anger is a powerful tool, manipulation tool. It powers up, and you know, it has many different forms. Anger can look different in different places, but anger is real, and it's intimidating. I remember when my son, I have two sons, and one was around 13, my oldest son, and we had this moment, this uh, discussion And I remember because he was at that age at 12 and 13 where you're trying to discover independence and you don't know where your boundaries are, so you're pushing every boundary. And I was on one of those days where I did not want to be pushed. And as he began to push, I began to power up. I remember it because I raised my voice. I I got as tall as I could be. I even stepped towards him. Why? In an attempt to control him to try to intimidate him. You know what's hard though, for a 13 year old boy, he didn't know enough to be afraid. (laughs) So he was just as cheeky as always in that moment. You know, here's the thing with anger. If you're given to anger, let me speak to you if you're given to anger, be careful. Be very careful. Anger, the problem with this, whether it's fear or anger, do you know why people use that in your life? Because it works. And the problem with anger is, if you use that enough, people will be nice to you because they dare not not be. But you, some of the loneliest men I ever met have met me in my office and talked about their life and why their children aren't close and why they are married, they have family, but 
people, when you use anger a lot, people don't want to be intimate with you. They don't mind being friendly with you. They'll walk around you, they'll be careful, but they're not gonna go into intimate relationship with you. You know why? It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous to be close to someone that's yanking on anger all the time. So fear and anger, they're all powering up tactics. You know another one is intellectual flexing. That's what I'm calling it. You probably never heard of that term. I made it up this week. If you find it on the internet, they took it from me, okay? So you know what intellectual flexing is? I've noticed this in life, in every sphere. I've seen it in marriages, but I've also seen it in workplaces. There are some people, and you know what? You know who you are. You're just gifted. You're smart. There's a lot of smart people. I remind myself, it's a discipline as a leader. Every meeting I go into, I remind myself, there are smarter people than me here. You have two ears and one mouth. Ferme la bouche. Listen. Because there are really intelligent people, and what a gift they are. But you could use your intelligence to control people or serve people. See, some people are just quicker on their feet and they're better in a debate. And I've watched a person in a marriage control the other person with their intellect. You know, after a while, it's for the same reason, just like anger. If you're always right, you know what happens after a while? Someone's always wrong then. And after a while, they begin to feel so small that, that you'll get compliance, you'll, you'll, get, you'll get immediate results, but you will, over time, erode your relationship with that person. So intellectual flexing can do that. And also the last one, I call it information hoarding. Have you ever met someone like that? I worked with someone once, and they had all of the corporate memory of the organization I was working at, wasn't here, and they had on their hard drive all this information and they would share it with no one. Why? Because it meant in every meeting we needed them. And they controlled the group with information. It used to be in the different era, information was power, right? Not in this era. Now, I believe in collaboration over silos. We share information because we don't want to create power corners. We want to empower groups, right? But you can see how easily people powering up can change things. Now, people tried these tactics on Jesus. Many of them tried these tactics on Jesus. In fact, if you look at this, when it comes to powering up, it's all attempt to intimidate people. That's what it is. And if you, have ins- if you uh, deal with anxiety and fear, these are easily preyed upon, and people will manipulate with it. It's an attempt, and what it really is, is flexing your strength to get the results you want. And we're all capable of this. You have strengths that other people don't have. And you can leverage them just like Jesus to serve others, or you can leverage them to try to manipulate things in your favor. We got the power to do both. Look at these couple of examples here where Jesus was, people tried to uh, control him with fear. His disciples did, even the Pharisees did. It said, at that time, some Pharisees said to him, get away from here. If you want to live, Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Now, I want you to see, I don't think their motives were bad here. But that power up lever was unmovable in Jesus' life. He acted and walked and talked as if he was never afraid. Where does that come from? I'll tell you at the end of the message. And then, not just that, you can see they try to control him with anger. 
As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and they tried to provoke him with many questions. They used anger to try to power up. There are many examples throughout the gospel of Luke and of course the gospels where people tried to control Jesus with those power up moments and every time Jesus was un, you could not manipulate him. You could not change him with those tools. And I'm going to give you the secret to how he was able to do that at the end of this message. But that's not the only tools that are employed. There's also this one. This is a well-used one in people's lives. This is flattery. And it speaks to really emotional manipulation that people try in our lives. One of the ways they do that is through insincere praise. Insincere praise. Here's a definition of what, what, what uh, flattery is. It's insincere praise given especially to further one owns, one owns interest. So it's like stroking someone's ego. Has anyone ever given you a compliment and you know it was just strategic? You know they didn't mean it. They wanted something. You ever have it? Boy, you guys have had the best people in your life forever. I have, for sure, we all have. And here's a moment where Jesus, it happened to Jesus. Again, remember, these Pharisees, they're not liking Jesus at this point. In fact, the scripture says this, they tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so they could arrest Jesus. So they don't have good intentions here. But look at, when they approached Jesus, they did this. They said, teacher, they said, we know you speak and teach what is right. And you are not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. Do you think that was sincere? It wasn't sincere at all. It was a setup. It was a setup to try to trip him up so they could bring him under the control of the Roman Empire and they could get rid of him. I mean, people tried insincere praise on him. They, they tried to uh, move him that way and control him that way and people will try that in your life. My favorite flattery, though, power-up move or, or manipulative move is what I call strategic sulking. Huh? You know what that is? That's when, when someone in your life is upset because they didn't get their way. They have a way of just letting you know that they're not happy. And you see them and they're sulking. And so you run to them and you think, oh, can I make you happy? You can make me happy by giving me what I want. And it's strategic sulking. And you know, again, why do people do this? Because it works. It works. I love this definition from the Urban Dictionary of what sulking means. It's someone who acts pouty, cold, and distant because they get offended by every single little thing because they're so sensitive that they can't get over themselves. I mean, it's quite a title, and I love this because it's just voted on by regular people as they make up these definitions. But sulking is an interesting strategy employed by many people. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus encounters this. There's a rich man, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, I've kept all your commands. And Jesus says, well, okay, then sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. And it says this in, in chapter 18, it says, but when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. And I love this scene, because I love how it plays out. And you know what I've always loved about this story? Is what Jesus didn't do. In this story, this rich man comes to Jesus and he's all excited. I've kept all your commands. I'm a good guy. Well, then sell everything you got and give it to the poor. Whoa, 
Jesus, I'm rich. And he's sad, and he turns around, and he walks away. I just imagine it happening this way. He's walking away. He's looking over his shoulder. Is Jesus coming after me? No. Did you say something? No. No. Okay. And he's sulking in this moment. And the amazing thing is Jesus never comes after him. The, the most convincing orator in human history doesn't chase him down and try to convince him, hey man, come on back, follow me, don't worry, God will provide all your needs according to his riches and glory, don't worry, daily he will provide for you what you need. He doesn't do that. Jesus' behavior can't be manipulated by, even by a strategic sulk. I wonder how many of you have someone who's a strategic sulk in your life. I wonder how much they control you because you're afraid they're going to walk away. Do they withhold joy? Do they withhold their presence? Do they display their discontentment? And you know what it's like. I'm like that. I, I, I'm like it when I, it bothers me when someone's not happy. And I want to make it right. And the temptation is run towards it. But here's the thing with all these behaviors. The more you feed the behavior they'll repeat the behavior. If you feed the behavior, they'll repeat the behavior. See, the more you give in to people pulling on these levers in your life, the more often they're going to use them. They're just, they're going to use them because they work. See, what you need to do as Jesus did, he had boundaries. We talked about that in week one. Boundaries are critical to eliminate the power of these levers in your life. So when someone powers up and they're trying to intimidate you in some way, you know, you have a boundary that says, listen, if you're going to talk to me in this way, then this conversation will have to continue at a different day. If you're going to power up in this way, or uh, I, I, I can understand you might be afraid, but I'm not going to take that fear on myself right now. I'm going to make a decision not out of fear, but out of faith in this moment. And we have boundaries, triggers, that helps us keep this from being leveraged in our lives. But the flattery one has to do, if this has to do with intimidation, this has to do with insecurities. That's what people are trying to manipulate is your insecurities in your life. Uh, so in other words, it looks like, and I'm just looking for the part in my notes here. Uh, insecurities is flexing your emotions, flexing the emotions in order to get the results that you want. There, it's flexing those emotions. Can you skip a couple of slides ahead there? Just the next slide, thank you. Okay, I'm jumping all over the place here. I'm sorry, guys. It's flexing your emotions to get the results you want. Now, the last form of flattery or manipulation of emotions has to do with what we're doing here today. And I called it authoritative religious language. What a title, eh? And if you're new to church, you're thinking, like, what does that mean? I hope, pray to God you never need to find out. Some people use spiritual language to control each other. They use spiritual language in venues like this or in, or in religious settings, or a lot of people individually, one to the other, they use spiritual language to cover their manipulation, right? So they're not gossiping, they're just sharing the burden, Right? They're not upset. They're just grieved in the Lord. They're not angry. They're just disturbed in their spirit. And they use spiritual language to justify poor behavior, really. 
And it, this, is what religion, this is why religion does bother me, because I've grown up in environments and I've seen how people use it to manipulate other people towards their end. So if somebody comes to you and they have a word from God for you, or they, they have a message from God, ask yourself right away, is this motivated to get me on their agenda or their preference? Or is this meant to serve me and edify me? Because that's a telling tale whether or not you should listen or maybe you should move on. Maybe you should move on. See, manipulation or flattery happens in many forms and people who cloak it with authoritative or spiritual language, they're really cloaking a lot of their motivation there. When it comes to religion, and this is really, you know, something I think, you know, Pastor Keith, the teaching pastor and I, we, we really want you to grab hold of this in our church community. We want to be pursuers and lovers of Jesus, not of religion and, and, and mask wearing. I don't want to stand up here and pretend to be a perfect husband, a perfect dad, because I'm not. Not a perfect man. No, remember, all the perfect people left a long time ago, it's just you and me. We're the only ones left. We're not, we're imperfect people on a journey towards a perfect God. I like what Paul Scanlon says. He says this, religion is the safest place to avoid God. Religion wants to lead us towards self-preservation. That means our self-interest. But God wants to lead us towards self-surrender and openness. Religion is the fig leaf that covers our authenticity and vulnerability. Friends, may we always be a community of faith where you can be your truest self, where you don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. Instead, it's okay not to be okay because we're all on a journey to becoming more okay with Jesus' help. And that's the type of community that we are as a church family. So flattery tries to levers, is it, do you say lever or lever? British apparently is lever and lever is American. So if you're American listening online, lever. If you're, if you're Canadian British, lever. Flattery is an effort to leverage someone's insecurities and we do it by flexing our emotions in order to get results we want. It's using emotions to get the results we want, whether in a spiritual environment, whether it's through some sort of flattery or insincere praise, whether through strategic sulking, we're, we're, we're preying on people's emotions in order to manipulate or control them. So one has to do with the intimidation, one has to do with insecurity, and the last one, man, this is the most powerful one, this is the one you vote at most for, is shame and guilt, shame and guilt. Now, shame and guilt look like they're the same thing. They're closely related. They're like brother and sister. But I want you to understand, whether shame is stronger in your life as guilt often has to do a lot with the culture you were raised in. So sociologists would identify that some people are born into shame-based cultures and some are born into guilt-based cultures. Guilt-based cultures are often Western cultures. North America is very guilt-based. Shame-based cultures are often Eastern or other different cultures. And shame-based cultures was what Jesus grew up in. He grew up in a shame-based culture. They're not the same. They're very different. And uh, actually, theologian Dan DeWitt helps us understand the difference between them. Guilt says, I did something bad. I did something bad. How many have ever felt guilt and you know you should have felt it? You did something wrong. Just if you're online today, you don't know that everyone is perfect in the room here today, but, but I've got both hands up. 
I have had felt guilty at times, and I should have felt guilty for what I did. Some of us have guilt. Some guilt can lead towards us changing our behavior and towards health, so guilt can be a good thing. But people leverage guilt in their life differently. If you're from a guilt-based society, it can look like this. Every Sunday after church, you should be going to have lunch at your parents' house, and you didn't this Sunday. And mom or dad call up that week, where were you? We missed you. Well, you know we're getting older. We might not be here next week. Pull it all away. And they've got the guilt trip going in order to control your behavior. Why? Because even though you didn't technically maybe do something wrong, you did something wrong in their eyes. And because you did, you're bad. <laughs> you did something bad, and the guilt they remind you of. Why? To control your behavior. Now, we, do, we do this all the time with each other, don't we? Shame is very different, though. If guilt says, I did something bad, shame says, I am bad. And friends, I want you to know, shame is more powerful than guilt. Both get results, but shame is more powerful. Shame looks like that same scenario. And you didn't come to lunch after church on Sunday, and that's a family expectation. We do that. Other families do not. We do that. And you're like, hey, I'm sorry, I wasn't able to be there. It's not that it was bad. Now it's, you're a bad son. You're a bad daughter. See, shame labels you. Shame just doesn't tell you that you did something wrong. Shame will tell you, you are wrong. And that's why it's so damaging and so easily controlling in people's lives. Uh, let's keep looking at it. Guilt says... A guilt is isolated to the individual. Here's what both of these things will do. They'll make you feel all alone. Guilt is isolating, and it's to the individual. If I feel guilty, do you know I pastored for 28 years? Do you know how many adults have sat in my room and thought they were the only one? The only one that had marriage problems. No one else in the church does. The only one with a pornography addiction. No one else in the church does. The only one with gender identification issues, no one else in the church does. And I just sit there and I listen and I think like, oh, you have no idea how many people do. You have no idea. But guilt makes you feel like something's wrong with you and you're the only one that has it. Shame is different. Shame is not so much isolated to the individual, it's contagious to the community. And this is what makes shame so powerful in our lives. See, to shame, it means you've done something, become something, decided something, and it's not just shame on you, it reflects on the family. You've brought shame on our family. So it's no longer just the weight you carry. Your family, your friends, or those around you know you're carrying all of us right now. And your poor behavior has resulted in shame, and it's like a big cloud over the whole community. And what it threatens to do is isolate us, and I'll show you in a moment. Guilt is a wound. It's something that wounds, it, it, it can be healing. Guilt can be good when it causes us to change our behavior, when it leads to what the Bible calls repentance. It just means change, a change in the way we do things. But scar, shame is a scar. I've got this scar right on my thumb here. It's from when I was 12 years old, going over a BMX bike ramp, and I wiped out, and I cut this all open. 
When my boys were little, they'd play with my hands, you know, they all pop, they try to press the veins down on your hands and they'd look at the scar and they'd say, what's that scar from? And I'd say, tell them the story. Because that scar will be there until the day I die. And that's what shame does. It scars you and leaves you a reminder. And it walks with you. And that's why it's so toxic and difficult. It labels you and it marks you. Now, what's interesting about guilt and shame, both of these, both of these tools in their life, they were tried to be used on Jesus too. People try to leverage guilt in his life and people try to leverage shame in his life. When guilt, uh, it says this, and the Pharisees say, this man, meaning Jesus, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Basically, you're saying, Jesus, you're doing something wrong, and you know you're doing it wrong, and you should feel guilty for it. What's interesting is, again, Jesus is not motivated by guilt, and you can't leverage him with guilt, and there's a good reason, which we'll get to at the end of the message. And then shame, his family, a couple of times trying to shame him in scripture because he's in a shame-based culture. Family is everything in a shame-based culture. Disappointing your family is debilitating, demobilizing, difficult. And in the shame-based culture, that's a very large controlling element of, towards people. And here they, they come in Luke chapter Luke chapter. Uh, Eight, it says this, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they couldn't get in because of the crowd. Someone said to Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to see you. And if you know the story, Jesus doesn't go out. That, that, that's a power move, although you might not know it in this culture. That was a power move to control Jesus, to bring him back under their control. And he doesn't, he's not moved by that. Where do you get the type of strength to do that? Here's why shame and guilt is so powerful. Shame and guilt is, tactics are so powerful because they prey upon our greatest fear, isolation. Isolation. Here's how it works. We flex our relationships. It is flexing your ability to break a relationship in order to get the results you want. I've, I've seen this and it's tragic, tragic consequences. I've watched parents and friends and brothers and sisters struggle with the behavior or the decisions of others. And that's okay because people don't make good decisions all the time. But I've watched them break relationship with them so they'd feel the full weight of their decision. And what they end up doing is they end up breaking the bridge by which their son, their daughter, their friend could come back to them. Friends, I thank God Jesus doesn't deal with this this way. Thankful for, in the Bible, they talks about conviction that we feel that God's spirit brings when we don't do things that harm us, harm us. And we feel conviction. And conviction always leads us back to a place of relationship. It doesn't break relationship. It pulls us towards relationship. Uh, when we shame people, we, we are breaking bridges in people's lives. And we have to be careful with these tools and how we leverage them. But in this world, you've probably had these pulled on you. And you've probably pulled a few along the way. 
How do we become the type of people where people who come along and are pulling on the powering up lever or the flattery lever or the guilt or shame lever in our life, how do we become like Jesus? I'm glad you asked. I have two words with you and we're going to close with this. The first word is behavior and the second word is perspective. What's interesting, when it comes to shame and guilt in our life, Jesus They could not manipulate Jesus with shame or behavior because of this. He behaved in such a way that guilt and shame could not easily attach itself to him. Couldn't attach itself to him. He behaved in such a way like he knew his behavior had the the ability to either cause it guilt and shame to come on him or not. Now, Jesus lived with no regrets because we knew he lived a perfect life. You can live with fewer regrets. If you'll just remember this, I love this, this little adage. I love this a lot. What we eat today, which is a choice, hits our hips tomorrow, which is an outcome. In other words, if we knew that our everyday moments are connected to our future fruit in our lives, we might live the everyday moments differently. Jesus wasn't moved by momentary pleasures, momentary uh, moments of vindication, Uh, those things didn't uh, move him. Instead, he was always playing the long game. If you only knew that your daily decisions are planting seeds, which will someday be the fruit that you'll reap tomorrow. Have you ever found yourself in a place in life where you don't like what's going on in your life, but when you looked over your shoulder, you realized you planted these seeds in your life? And we plant seeds all the time in our daily decisions that will be the fruit we'll reap in the future. And Jesus lived in such a way that he didn't have those regrets so shame and guilt could not get on him. Now, friends, we're right in the middle of COVID-19 crisis. Let me ask you this. What could you do now that you'll wish someday, months from now, that you had done? Is it get more toilet paper? (laughs) Have you been the ones hoarding it? I, listen, Shelly sent me grocery shopping about a week ago just to get like two things. And I got into the store and I brought the big bags that we have. And I got in the store and I just saw people kind of panicking. I saw them getting stuff and I just felt like, what am I missing out on here? And I began to get a little extra stuff and I came in with two large bags. I was like, I went out to get milk. And I came in with two large bags and Shelly goes, what, 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 did, what did you do, Jonathan? I just had to admit, I said, I don't know, Shelly, it just came over me. Everybody was panicking. I thought I should be panicking. Why am I not panicking? I better panic. (laughs) I'll tell you this, though, months from now, when this is all done, I'm going to hope that and wish that I was really generous in this season. That if I've stockpiled, I hope it's to share with some single parents that can't afford to stockpile that I'm being generous with the way I care for the people in my life. You know, I tell you, you, some of you will have more time on your hands in this season. Behave in such a way you'll regret less things. Take this time to lean into Jesus. You know what? Call your parents. Call your parents. Yes, call your parents. Tell them you love them. Rebuild bridges. Reach out to friends. Do what you can do in this season to redeem it in a way that will honor Jesus. So behave in such a way. Now, if you're a young person, don't walk through life like many people do with a lot of guilt. I'm going to give you an opportunity at the end of this gathering to leave all your guilt here, and that will be good. 
Because the more guilt you carry, the more susceptible you are to being manipulated. And the closer you are to Jesus, if his voice is the most important and most powerful voice in your life, all of a sudden the shaming voices will be quieted in your life. Because you'll want to do what he wants to do most of all. Here's the last thing. Why people couldn't power up with Jesus. Why he was never intimidated. Why he was never scared. Anger didn't work on him. Fear didn't work on him. Insincere praise didn't work on him. Is because he had a different perspective than most. See, Jesus walked this earth as if he always knew there was someone with him that was bigger and more powerful than anyone or anything he would ever face. When I was a boy, I remember being with my dad walking down the street on the city we lived in, and a guy, he probably had some mental illness issues, came running up to us and he's yelling at us. It was just out of the blue. And my dad kind of pushed me behind him. And when, he, when I got behind him, I felt incredibly safe because in my eyes, my dad was the biggest guy I knew. And I, my dad de-escalated the situation, nothing happened, and we moved on. Can you imagine when you hit the fear that you will hit over the coming weeks? Could you imagine just God going before you? Him standing in front of you? Changing your perspective. 72 years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. The atomic bomb had just dropped. And it was catastrophic. And everyone was fearful of the atomic age. And this is what he said. How are we going to live in the atomic age? He said, I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in the Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat at night, or indeed, as you already are living in the age of cancer, in the age of syphilis, in the age of paralysis, in the age of air raids, in the age of railway accidents and motor accidents. In other words, listen to this, do not let us begin to exaggerate the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. He says this, and this is where I want it to land. Death itself is not a chance, but a certainty. It's not a chance, it was a certainty. If we're all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let the bomb drop when it comes and finds us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing our children, playing tennis, chatting with our friends or, over a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep thinking of the bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they, can, they need not dominate our minds. What a perspective. Where do you get that kind of perspective? You can only have that type of perspective if you've settled one thing. That death has been defeated. You know, friends, with that type of confidence, it's not a license to live unwisely. But fearlessly. It's not a license to live recklessly. It's a license to live with purpose in your life. Jesus knew this. Jesus lived as if his days were in the Father's hand. He didn't flaunt it. He leveraged it, and it made him bold and courageous in the world that he was in while people were trying to kill him constantly. And he lived courageously in that. Maybe this is why the most often repeated command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You know, every time 
I'm intimidated. When I'm fearful and I start to get anxious, I play a little game. And the game is called this. What's the worst that can happen, Jonathan? And I begin to play out what's the worst that can happen here. You know what the worst is? The worst is that somehow I lose my life and I end up in the hands of Jesus. So the worst that can happen is I win. I win. And that gives me confidence to live boldly even when there's panic around me. Friends, there are always going to be manipulative people in life. And you know, to be honest, we're all a little difficult ourselves. And we're all going to use or attempt to use manipulation at different times. If you're tempted to use it, be careful. Because it reveals where we're having trouble trusting God. If you're dealing with manipulative people, good boundaries. Remember, where they're trying to leverage you, identify which lever they're pulling on. And then you need to sure up yourself around those areas so you're not so easy. Because listen, if you, if you give into it, if you, you're, you're feeding it and they'll repeat it. And that's the cycle we tend to go on. Now, here's what I'd like to do in conclusion. I want to pray for you. And then at the end of our gathering, I'll give you a benediction and we'll leave this place and the band will be playing in the background and you're going to go out into a sunny, sunny outdoors in Toronto. If you're online, I hope it's sunny where you are. And as you look outside and you see that sun coming down, I want you to think of this. Think about how faithful God is. After every storm, the sun. The sun pushing back darkness. After every night, morning. I want you to remember how faithful God is. Friends, he's got you. Father, I thank you, God, for Jesus, your son. And Lord, I pray for my friends in this room and, I, and online, and I know we're all coming from different places in life. And when it comes to dealing with difficult people, and particularly as we focus on manipulative people in our life, how easily we're controlled, God. God, I, I pray for my friends that are overcome with fear, that are easily intimidated, God, in the face of anger, that, that when people that are smarter than them begin to pontificate, they feel small. God, may we see ourselves not from the light of how we see ourselves in the mirror, but from your vantage point, Jesus. Every one of us is of equal value in this room and online fearfully and wonderfully made. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Help us to not be easily intimidated, God. Instead, God, I pray your spirit be whispering whom we are and to whom we belong to, God. God, I pray for those, Lord, that maybe because of our own insecurities, the words that people have have so much power and control in our lives. They can stroke our ego easily to get us to do what they want. Uh, they, they have a way of either uh, st those strategic compliments or even the, the strategic sulkers in our life, God. And they just control us because we have a need to feel connected to people. And, and God, we have great insecurities there. I pray, Lord, pray by your spirit you to remind us that, God, we're adopted into your family. And God, we have shortcomings, every one of us, until we see you face to face. But God, I pray, Lord, that you would backfill our emotional needs. That when people pull on that lever, we'd have boundaries. Little signs that we remember, wait, what's going on here? Am I getting played here? 
And God, by your spirit, you'd help us, the little flashing yellow lights, to be careful. And God, for those that are living in a place of shame or guilt, and maybe that's a lever that gets pulled every week in their life. Friends, if it's guilt, I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now. Jesus, I want to leave my guilt here today. Would you forgive me? Forgive me of everything that I've done that has hurt other people, that's hurt myself, or has hurt my relationship with you. I want to leave this place, in this space, in this moment, guilt-free. And God, I know that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus because your righteousness covers us. So Jesus, would you free us from our guilt? And God, for those of us in this room or online that are feeling some guilt, and it's good guilt because it's leading us to, it's putting its finger on a place in our life that needs to change. I pray, God, that we would do the changing, that we would, what the Bible says, repent. We would confess our sin, and we would just leave that guilt there, and we would change the way we're going in this life so we don't have to carry guilt with us. And friends, God, with those people that are feeling shame and the fear of being isolated from others is deafening in their life. I don't make light of that, but I would remind them by your spirit today that if they're a follower of Jesus, they have been adopted into his family and no one can pluck you, them out of your hand. Not an angel, not a demon, nor death, nor life, nor any person can take them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And I pray, God, that they would recognize they have incredible value in you. And God, those scars can actually go away. And Lord, you can reestablish them. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that shame would not have that power over their lives, but instead they would experience a freedom by your Spirit. I pray this all in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing, both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.